You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. You know, one thing that, that I, I'm thankful for the resurrection, I'm thankful for the difference that it makes, but one thing I think is certainly true, and that is um, that you don't fully appreciate the resurrection until you comprehend Christ's death. You can't fully grasp the significance of the fact that he rose from the dead until you start to understand what his death was like. And so this morning, I think the Lord would have us to focus on the death of the Son of God before he rose. And, and, and we did that on Tuesday night as well as a church family with our Lord's Supper service. And, and yet I, I still feel like the Lord is leading me to look at his death, his crucifixion this morning. And John chapter 19 is where we're going to be. And if you find it, uh, then go ahead and stand as you find it. Again, there are Bibles in the pews if you need a Bible and there are Bibles around you if you need somebody to look after. I know we, our folks would be more than happy to help you do that. To our guests this morning, I know I didn't say it earlier, uh, thank you again for being here. Um, and we certainly are thankful that you chose to spend the morning. If you haven't already, then uh, please stop at the Welcome Center and just fill out a quick guest card. We have a small gift to send with you. I know we have a number of first-time and repeat guests as well today, and we're grateful for you. Also thankful for our church members uh, this morning who came out early. We had men's prayer meeting at 745, which was great. And then we had a, a fellowship breakfast, a, kind of a sunrise breakfast. Had about 150 folks come out this morning, and uh, we've already had a good day of fellowship. And yet, uh, we would be remiss if we thought that we could come and gather and not hear from the Lord through his word. And that's really what we need this morning, um, and I hope that you've come ready for it. Um, this, this passage, we're not going to read the whole thing, but this passage is immediately after the Jews deliver Jesus to Pilate and then um, to be tried and crucified by, by Pilate. And, and uh, you know, they, the Jews had accused him of blasphemy, and even though in Pilate's eyes we'll see that Pilate did not see Jesus as having broken any laws worthy of death. And yet the Jews wanted him dead, and Pilate's a politician, so he gives in to their demands. So John chapter 19, verse 16, is where I, I'd like to start, and we'll read down through verse 30. It says, Then delivered he him, therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. And he bearing his cross went forth, into a place called unto a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two other with him on either side, one and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, mockingly. This title then read many of the Jews for. The place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews, as if he's the one claiming it. We're not proclaiming him to be the king. Pilate answered, 
What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam woven from the top throughout. They said therefore among themselves, let us not rend it but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. That the scripture might be fulfilled which saith, they parted my raiment among them and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things therefore the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by, that's John, whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the, to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it into his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. This morning, I'd like to take a simple and straightforward look at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And my intention today is not to be graphic and to shock you. Um, I will admittedly leave out many details in order to um, get through the message in a timely way. But I believe that our appreciation of the resurrection will be raised as we understand what our sin cost Jesus. Until you realize what he endured, the resurrection won't be nearly as important to you. And again, there will be lots of details that I won't cover, but today I just want to focus in a straightforward way. I hope you'll understand. There's not much you can do to come up with a clever outline when it comes to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But I want to focus on those three words there in verse 30 when he said, It is finished. And what that means for us, because it really does mean everything. Let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Father, I can't do this. I just want to start by saying that. And I, you know, I don't have confidence in myself. I, I don't think that there's any way that I can present this in my own strength and have it be worth anything. Lord, we, we must, like the song says, all is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. We need you, Lord. And we're asking you to speak. We're asking you to work. And I don't know what folks have brought in this morning and maybe they're searching for something. And I pray that they would stop searching for it in a way that allows them just to kind of fit Christianity into their lives but that they would realize that Christianity is a, is a life of sacrifice. It's a life of commitment. It's a life um, of bearing a cross like Jesus did. And it's not always easy, but it's always worth it. And I pray that you'd help us today to realize and recognize what the, resurre what the, what the crucifixion means and then what the resurrection means because of it. Lord, pray, we pray that you bless the reading of your word and help us today to be focused and engaged in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
Few things bother me more than knowing I failed to finish something. Anybody in your mind right now have something on your list that you haven't finished and you know you've got to finish it, but it's kind of weighing on you? I've got some things like that right now. How many have ever started a book and never finished it? Okay, raise your hand. Right now we have a puzzle on our table. It's been there for months and it's about 70% done and all the pieces that aren't there have been lost. So we're never going to finish it now. Um, how many of you ever started a diet or workout plan and didn't follow through? Okay, is confession is good for the soul. How many of you ever lied in church? Okay, so maybe you have a to-do list with tasks on it that you've been putting off for months. Uh, I, can, this is a morning of confession, so I'm just going to confess to you something that's happening. I have unfinished business in my life right now. My wife would tell you, I'm going to make a confession about eight months ago, one of our bathroom fans went out. And I immediately, because I don't want to procrastinate, I went to the store and I bought a bathroom fan that looked about the same size, but then I got it home and realized there was going to be a little bit more effort than I thought, and then I got busy and I never installed it. And my wife very conveniently set it in the bathroom for a while as if a way to remind me that it's there and needs to be done, and that didn't help. And right now that fan sits in the floor of my closet, right, so that I can see it when I walk in it. It's unfinished business, and maybe you have business like that. Maybe you've got things on your list that you haven't finished. I mean, I do feel bad about it. I don't know why we struggle to finish things. There are a few things more satisfying than saying, I finished what I set out to do. Isn't it just, it's a dopamine rush, I know, to check something off of your to-do list. I don't know why we don't do it more often. Wouldn't it be great if you always, listen, if you always finished exactly what you were supposed to do? You know, there's only one person who's ever been able to say at the end of his life, I finished exactly everything that I set out to do. His name is Jesus. And his life wasn't lived for money. He did, his business was not about a company. No, his business was his father's business. And at, the stake, at, the stake was, at stake was the salvation of mankind. And as we consider the finished work of Jesus Christ, I want to start by imagining, if you will, a large crowd of people during Bible times. And there's a man, and he's being questioned by uh, the Roman governor, Pilate, He's clearly, this man has been beaten. He's obviously weary. The night before, the Jewish religious leaders had gone into a garden and forcefully taken Jesus Christ from among his disciples and taken him to stand trial for blasphemy. Now, understand, they didn't immediately take him to trial before the government. No, they, their first trials, the first of three trials, um, the trials were religious trials. Very early in the morning, about 1 a.m., they had first taken him to a man named Annas, who is a high priest. And then they took him to his son-in-law, um, Caiaphas, who was also a high priest. And then they took this man, Jesus, before the whole religious council, the Sanhedrin. And their goal was to find witnesses to his blasphemy. But they couldn't find witnesses that agreed because they were telling lies about Jesus Christ. So eventually then the high priest very directly asked Jesus and said, Art thou the Christ? And Jesus had answered, I am. 
That was all they needed. In a frenzy, they worked themselves up, saying, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. So they blindfolded Jesus, and they began to strike him, open-palmed across the face, over and over and over. And they said, Thou Son of God, prophesy, tell us who just smote thee. Open-handed, open-palmed, they hit him over and over and over and over again. Prophesy unto us, thou Christ. The Bible says that they spit on him and they mocked him through the night. As the sun began to rise, the whole mob then worked into a frenzy as mobs can do. They then took him to the hall of judgment known as the Praetorium. It was the palace in which Pontius Pilate resided and Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea. In those days, Rome was over Judea and they were, they were in charge. They were the ruling government. These religious trials that they had carried Jesus throughout the night, they, they weren't official. They needed to convince the governor that Jesus was guilty of crimes worthy of death. So watch with me. Pay attention. See it in your mind's eye. This mob of frenzied religious leaders bring this man who's beaten and swollen. You can't see his face. You recognize him. They brought him to Pilate who asks them, what accusation bring ye against this man? In the parallel passage in Luke 23, they say, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the King. They twisted his words in order to make it sound like he's a threat against the governor. I mean, look, at, look over at John 18, verse 33. This is just one chapter before our, our passage, our text for the day. John chapter 18, verse 33. Look, in verse 33 it says, Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And so Pilate directly then asked Jesus, and look at Jesus in Pilate's exchange here, verse 34. Jesus answered him saying, uh, answered him, sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests had delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, and basically he tries to convince, he's convincing Pilate, listen, I'm no threat to your political government, this earthly government. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight they would be backing me up that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. See, that's, by the way, that's one good point that Jesus was trying to make to his disciples when Peter picked up that sword and chopped off, off the ear of, of, of the Jewish man there in the garden. When Peter did that, Jesus said, put the swords away because he was trying to convince them this is not about political power. We're not in a war, in a battle that you can see. This is a spiritual battle. My kingdom is not of the earth. There's a better, bigger, greater battle that I am fighting. Put away the sword, Peter. Verse 37, Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. 
To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. You know what Pilate is saying? He's no threat to the Roman government. He's done nothing as a political threat. I don't see how he's broken any laws. He's done nothing wrong. In my mind, he's innocent. But it was the Passover. And on the Passover, it was a tradition to release a prisoner to the people. Look what it says in verse 39. He says, I find in him no fault, but ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? You know what Pilate is saying? This man is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. He's not worthy of death on any level. You've delivered him unto me, bringing these accusations. I don't see how there's anything I can do. He's not broken any Roman laws. So my suggestion to you, my suggestion to you is I know you've got a custom that a prisoner is released. So, I mean, I'm surely you want me to release Jesus, right? Surely you want me to release this innocent man who's done nothing wrong, who's guilty of nothing. Uh, surely this is the one you want to be released. Well, no, not the people. They didn't want Jesus released. Verse 40 in chapter 18 says, Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man. But Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. If you look over in the parallel passages. The other gospels in Luke chapter 23. It says Barabbas was a murderer. He was no upstanding citizen. So the people are clearly saying. We'd rather have a murderer in our midst. Than somebody like this man. Somebody claiming to be the son of God. Through it all. Pilate clearly believed that Jesus was innocent, that, that he wanted nothing to do with Christ's execution. And if you read Mark, Matthew 27, his own wife sent him a message saying, Have thou nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. And Pilate should have listened to his wife. She says, don't do anything with Jesus. Have now nothing to do with this. And if you read the other parallel passages, three times Pilate said, um, you know what, listen, I'll, I'll, I will beat him, we'll scourge him, and then I'll release him. Three times he offered that. Each time the people said, no, we want him. You know why? Because Jesus challenged the control of their religious system. They wanted to stay in control of religion and Jesus was coming and threatening their power in the religious system. Now remember, Pilate was a politician. It was important for his job security as governor to keep the peace. So he took water in front of the people. He took a basin of water and he washed his hands in front of the people as a symbol. And he said, I am innocent of the blood of this just man See you to it. And that's when they said, let, him blood be, let his blood be on us and our children. So Pilate sentenced Jesus. Then Pilate had his soldiers uh, scourge Jesus. In John 19, verse 1, Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. This was a Roman practice. It involved uh, a leather whip, 
with multiple strands or straps. And on the ends of those straps, you've probably heard this before, there's pieces of bone and metal attached to the end of it. So imagine, we're still envisioning then Jesus, imagine his agony as the Roman soldier flings that cat of nine tails onto the back of Jesus Christ and the bone and the sharp pieces of metal embed themselves in the Son of God's back in his flesh. Then the soldier rips it downward as if the, so the pieces would tear through his back and leave gaping wounds. Ribbons of flesh are left hanging while the blood spills onto the marble floor of the judgment hall. Again, I'm not trying to be graphic. I'm trying to help us to understand the severity of his death. That it was real. It truly happened. Josephus, the historian, said that many times the leather straps would wrap their way around through the front of the man being scourged into his abdomen and rip it open. And he would die right there on the scourging floor. I want to remind you what Jesus did for you. He never intended to leave business unfinished. Imagine as the soldiers make a mock crown with two to three inch thorns. They make it to mock him and then they drive it down upon his scalp. Mark 15, 19 says that they smote him with reeds on the head. And a reed is a rod. It's not just a stalk of a little plant. It's a rod. So they place the crown on his head and then they beat him on the head with that rod. And smote him on the head to drive the thorns deeply into his brow and into his skull. They beat him so badly that he was unrecognizable. Now imagine as they take a mock robe, a purple robe made for a king, place it on his back, and as it soaks through with blood, almost immediately they mock him, they pluck out his beard, according to prophecy, they continue to spit on him, then they force him to carry this 100 pound crossbeam, which is the cross he'll be crucified, his own cross, they force him to carry it as far as he can, and when it becomes clear that he can't carry it, they recruit a man, Simon, the Cyrene, and make him come and carry the cross of Jesus Christ. At this point, he's lost so much blood. He's barely, he's barely um, alive. He's barely uh, even awake. He's fading in and out of consciousness. Look at verse 16 of our text. 19, 16, then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified and they took Jesus and led him away, verse 17, and he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha because of how it looked, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side one and Jesus in the midst, they put him between two common thieves, the son of God, who's not been declared guilty of anything, Hanging between these two thieves. The crucifixion 
began at Golgotha around 9 a.m. Remember, they arrested him in the garden probably around 1 o'clock. For a few hours, they, they had these religious trials. Around 6 o'clock in the morning, they took him to Pilate. And for those three hours, they tried to, Pilate tried to convince them to let him go, and they wouldn't. So Pilate and his men scourged them. For those three hours, around 9 o'clock is when the crucifixion at Golgotha begins. And in your mind's eye, watch as they drive eight-inch square-edged spikes. Now these aren't rounded edges. Square-edged eight-inch spikes into each wrist and into both feet. And as the spikes pass by the median nerves in his wrist, it sends uh, spasms of acute pain throughout his body. His muscles would have been cramping from dehydration and from being forced to keep himself in an unnatural position. He would have had to, every time he needed to breathe, lift himself up enough to take a breath. And as he did, the open wounds on his back would scrape against the back of that rough timber and shoot more pain through his body. And through it all, I just want to remind you that he'd never forget that Jesus did not intend to leave his business unfinished. For three hours... Our Lord hung in agony, raising himself up for each labor breath, not just in pain, but in shame. I've cried tears and tears this week thinking about the shame. The pain is one thing, the shame is another to be naked. On a cross for all to see. Mocked by those standing there. I mean while he's dying. They take the robe. And these soldiers are over to the side. Gambling. So that they could keep the robe. As a keepsake. And he hung there for three hours. In front of his mother like that. In front of his aunt. And other loved ones, according to verse 25. And if anyone would have been justified to not finish this task, Jesus at any time could have said, I am done. But Jesus Christ leaves no business unfinished. In Luke 23, he said, Father, forgive them. While he's hanging there, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he thought of his mother. He said, woman, behold thy son. He thought of John. He said, behold thy mother. And to symbolize that he wanted John to take care of his mother. He was thinking of others. I mean, he could probably barely see through the slits of swollen eyes. But he's thinking about John and his mother and how he needs somebody to take care of his mom. I mean, listen, he could have called 10,000 angels. But he never leaves business unfinished. Luke 23 reads, and it was about the sixth hour, noon. So he's been on the cross for about three hours. And it says there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, which would be three o'clock in the afternoon. The sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. Remember, the crucifixion began at nine Christ hung there for three hours, visible in daylight, and then darkness fell over the region. It was like midnight at noon. It wasn't an eclipse. 
It wasn't a thunderstorm or a South Dakota derecho. No, God the Father supernaturally turned out the lights. Because for three hours, nothing but darkness. There's very little said. There's very little movement. No one knows what's going on. And then around three o'clock, the ninth hour through the darkness, Jesus, the Bible says, cries with a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's the longest three hours of his existence. Because during those three hours, God, his father, turned his face from his own son. In those three hours of darkness, the sins committed by you and the sins committed by myself and the sins committed by every person that's ever lived or is living or will ever live, every one of those sins was transferred to Jesus Christ himself. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And during those three hours of darkness, all the sins that you enjoy on a daily basis, all the things you take pleasure in, all the hidden sins that nobody sees, all the open sins that you openly enjoy, they were all poured on the Son of God. And while the sky was dark for three hours, Jesus was plunged into darkness he'd never experienced before. The Holy Son of God literally became sin on the cross. The Holy Son of God... Um, took our sins. Peter wrote it this way, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. Every sin, listen, every sin that you've ever committed was felt by Jesus that day. Every lie you've ever told Big or small. He knows about it. He carried it. Every word you've ever said. Cruel or harmful. Or even in a joking way. But you meant it for harm. He, held, he felt every word. Every time you've blasphemed the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He felt it like a weight on his shoulders. Every act of disobedience that you've ever committed. Every fit of rage that you've ever had. Every peak of lust every sexual sin, whatever the sin is, no matter how insignificant, no matter how large, everything you've ever done that's wrong against Jesus Christ, he felt it. It contributed to every slap of his face that day. Every thorn driven into his brow has one of my sin's names on it. Every stripe of the whip on his back was due to a wrong choice that you've made in your life. Each blow of the spike into his body, each shot of pain was due to our anger. It was due to our lust. It was due to our every wicked thought and our every wicked deed. And God's wrath was poured out on his son who knew no sin. He was the spotless lamb of God. He was sinless and always will be. Yet that day for three hours, plunged into darkness, he became my sin. And you might say, this is too depressing. And I thought Easter was supposed to give hope. Listen, there's no reason to look for hope until you know just how dark it can be. You don't look for light until you've experienced darkness. We can't appreciate the resurrection until we comprehend the crucifixion. And he died 
because of our sins. And after those three hours of spiritual darkness being forsaken by his father, John 19.30 tells us that Jesus cried out with three final words in English. He said, it is finished. It's a translation of one Greek word, to telestai. And I'm going to put it up on the screen so that you can see it. The Greek word tetelestai means it is finished. So it is finished is a translation of one Greek word. And some have said it's the greatest word from the greatest man on the greatest day in all eternity. No word has ever changed the history and destiny of mankind like tetelestai. See, Christ was referring to his finished work on the cross. And listen, what he was saying is the debt is paid. It's paid in full. It's finished. It's over. Tetelestai is a word in the perfect tense, which means it's a past event completed that has present effect for eternity. Which means that Christ's work on the cross has an ongoing and permanent effect on our lives. And what Jesus was saying was his mission to redeem or pay for the sins of mankind was, is done. But its effect would be felt for eternity. Meaning only he could pay for our sins. But once he did it was enough. Listen, if you were to walk into the bank and pay off your mortgage tomorrow, I would rejoice. You would rejoice. Maybe some of you have experienced that. If you walk into the bank and you pay off your mortgage in full and they give you uh, paperwork, this letter of certification, you know, written across it, it would say paid in full. I'm telling you, I would, I would jump up and down. I'd, I'd love it. But they can't wait for that day in our own lives. So next month, maybe you say your payments are due on the 5th of every month. So on the 5th of of the 4th or maybe the 3rd, so the check gets there in time. You pull out your checkbook and you start writing it out to the bank for for the total amount of your mortgage. You put it in an envelope, you write the address to the bank, you put a stamp on it and you go put it in the mailbox. Now tell me, would you do that? Well, no. Oh, you say, well, I would because I'm old and I forget things. Well, no. Listen, if your debt is paid, you don't have to keep sending checks to the bank. See, that one event way back here when you paid the debt, in 10 years, guess what? Your debt is still paid. And in 20 years, your debt is still paid. And in 30 years, in 40 years, until you die, your debt is still paid. You don't have to keep paying your mortgage to tell us die. It is finished. The debt has been paid. And listen, the same thing is true for our sin. When Jesus cried to tell us die on the cross, he was saying that anyone who places their faith in the sacrificial death of myself on, their be- on Jesus' behalf or on your behalf, if you, if you place your trust in the payment that I am making right now on the cross, I will give you a certificate that says paid in full to tell us die. 
Because listen, we're all sinners and we are all guilty. And the wages of our sin is death, the Bible says. And we deserve to be separated from God for eternity in a literal place. And I know it's not popular, but the Bible speaks to it. A literal place called hell. We deserve to be separated from God in that place forever. But listen, Jesus Christ paid every last cent of your debt. Every last cent of your wages he paid. Nothing else is owed. He redeemed you. He paid for you to tell us thine. At three o'clock in the afternoon on the day of his crucifixion, which by the way was the time the Passover lambs were sacrificed. That lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world died for your sins and mine. And he did it in such a way that it's finished. If you've come into this building this morning and you've never received his payment for your sins, you must figure out how to pay for them yourself. Here's your problem. You can't. It requires a sinless sacrifice and you're a sinner. But Jesus wasn't. And he was qualified to die in your place. And if you refuse to accept his payment by faith, then you will die for your sins and be eternally separated for God. from God. That's your payment. But in his finished means the work of salvation is complete. Listen, all you have to do is come to the end of yourself. Acknowledge that your sins have separated you from God and received his finished work on the cross. Listen, he left nothing undone because here, Jesus leaves no business undone. Believe. He did it all. It is finished. And you can't add anything to what Christ has done. It's not your good. Some of you come in here this morning and you say, yes, he did that. But I still think I've got to do this set of things and I've got to do this number of good works. No, you can't add anything because it's finished. You say, well, you know, I've got to get baptized if I want to really make him happy and really please him. Well, no, you can't add anything because the work has been finished. And you say, well, I've got to have religion or I've got to come to church. I've got to be faithful. I've got to take this. My church says I've got to do this. Listen, if you go to a church that says you've got to do something in addition to what Jesus Christ has done, they're not preaching the truth of the gospel because to tell us die, it is finished. Your responsibility today, your responsibility, listen please, I'm pleading with you because some of you will leave this place not having it settled in your own life. But listen, your responsibility is to accept or reject the payment. Jesus died, the sacrifice is done, God is satisfied, and when Jesus said it is finished, to tell us die, he meant it, so will you believe it? When the veil was rent, in verse 39, it was a picture of the fact that we now have access to God through Jesus Christ. Listen, that day represents the finished work of salvation. And, and not to be offensive, but nobody else has ever died for your sins. And Buddha did not die for your sins. And Muhammad did not die for your sins. The Pope did not die for your sins. No religious leader that's ever been in existence has ever died for your sins and even if they tried, they couldn't because 
They're all fallible sinners just like you and I. Only one could say it is finished and his name is Jesus. And that one-time transaction is still in effect today. So what you must do is come this morning and admit that you're a sinner, place your faith in his finished work, and spend eternity in heaven with him forever. It's time to place your faith in Jesus once and for all. Christian, it is finished means you are forgiven. See, stop assuming it wasn't enough. That's, that sin in your life has been paid for. So stop beating yourself up about it. I'm not saying enjoy it. I mean, the Bible says, shall we continue in sin? No. I mean, grace doesn't give us license. No, it gives us the opportunity to have victory over sin. No, so there's no reason to stay there. There's no reason to dwell there. There's no reason to think that you can't overcome it. Stop allowing it to conquer you because to tell us that it is finished. Is there some sin in your life or in your past that you think, I'm not sure he can forgive that one? I'm not sure it's enough. In your mind, maybe you're struggling to accept, accept God's full forgiveness of sin. But let me remind you of the word that he used, to telestai. God looked at your leisure and he stamped it once and for all and he said, paid in full. It's done. Well, what about my anger? To telestai. Finished. Paid in full. Well, pastor, though, my drunkenness, and I can't seem to... No, tell us, die. It is finished. Paid in full. Well, what about my lying? I'm a dishonest person. To tell us, die. It is finished. Paid in full. Not only does he forgive you, and you don't have to beat yourself up, but he gives you power and victory over sin. To tell us, die. It is finished. Well, what about my pride? I'm a proud person. We all are. To tell us, die. Paid in full, it is finished. Well, what about my disobedience? You don't know how bad I've been with my parents. Now listen to Telestai. It is finished, paid in full. What about murder? What about the worst thing I can think of? To Telestai, it is finished, paid in full. So listen today, what's that one sin in your life? You're not sure Christ can forgive. You're not sure he can help you overcome. Maybe the right question is, what part of Telestai doesn't apply to you? Because if it's finished, it's finished for you. He's forgiven you. He's given you victory already. And for you to wallow in the guilt of your past or to continue to be ruled by your sin is to dispute his claim that it is finished. It's like sending checks to the bank when your mortgage is paid in full. Listen, this makes a difference if you're not saved. It makes a difference if you are saved. Christ finished redemption. And you say, well, what does this have to do with Easter? Christ's resurrection, listen. Christ's resurrection is the exclamation point to his claim. It is finished. It's the exclamation point. You see, if Jesus had stayed in the grave, it would say, to tell us die? With a question mark. It would say, it is finished? With a question mark. 
Because we wouldn't be sure that he had done enough for us if he stayed dead. But the fact that three days later he walked out of the grave and, and, and defeated and conquered death, death means that we have an exclamation point. It's not to tell us die. It's to tell us die. It is finished. It is finished. Anyone could have claimed to pay for our sins, but only the one who conquered the grave could prove it was true. And you can trust that it is finished because the one who said it is still alive. That's how you know it's finished. He walked out of the grave. Three days later, that's how we knew it really is finished. His resurrection sealed it. And not only that, his resurrection seals our salvation. Romans, Paul wrote, who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for your justification. 1 Peter 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So his resurrection does play a role in our salvation. Listen, if he had never risen, you could not be saved. The resurrection is the exclamation point to salvation. Listen, everything he did, the torture, the beatings, the spit, the mocking, the thorns, the whip, the nails, the shame, being forsaken by his father. And the resurrection, it was all so he could say, it is finished. And it was all for you and I. Listen, he came and he went through all of it because he never leaves work undone. He never leaves a job unfinished. He never starts something and fails to, to end it. No, he always follows through and he did it for you and he did it for, my, for myself and all that's left for me to say is I believe it. I trust it. I place my faith in the only one who's come out of the grave. I believe it is enough to place my faith in him so I can be saved and go to heaven. You can do that this morning. But can you imagine someone being willing to pay your debts off and you being so proud that you refuse it? Listen, some of you are here this morning and you've heard that your debt has been paid to tell us it is finished and you're going to leave without having it applied to your own life because of pride, because of fear, because of a lack of courage, because you've got to get to your roast that's on. Listen, it's finished. You should accept the payment. Don't leave without it. Christian, you must say as well, I believe it, it enough. I believed in, te, in te, te, Telestai enough to be forgiven and have victory over my sin. Stop revisiting sin that's already been paid for. It's finished. He forgave you. So stop wallowing in the guilt and stop submitting to its power because Jesus Christ has power over death and proves he also has power over your sin.
every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm going to ask you a question this morning. Do you know today for sure, 100%, that if you die, that you'd spend eternity in heaven? Do you know that? We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.